telling your employees, we're going to help you retire by the time you're 64. We'll give you money. We'll give you stocks. We'll match your 401k. But in the age of the internet, and also in light of the pandemic, people are realizing they deserve more. They have access on how to better care for themselves and take care of themselves. And what they're realizing is they don't need you and you need them. And now it's actually a business imperative. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone. Sometimes I'm dining with friends. And sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Viviane Castillo is incredibly passionate about supporting professionals who are disillusioned with the status quo in UX and tech and who want to help it live up to its ideals of empathy and inclusion. She brings eight-plus years of psychology and research experience spanning multiple contexts, cultures, and industries, and her work and opinions have been written about in Slate, Fortune, Huffington Post, Fast Company, and Elle magazine. Prior to her career in the UX and tech industry, she worked primarily in the arenas of human services and counseling, where she tackled issues like shame, empathy, vulnerability, and compassion. These days, she's dedicating the bulk of her time helping professionals do the personal work required to do their best professional work, building more holistically human-centered leaders through community and courses, coaching executives and teams on how to create sustainable, equitable cultures, and helping professionals choose courage over comfort in the workplace. Welcome back to Diversity Dish. My guest today is Vivian Castillo. How are you, Vivian? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm I'm so excited to have you. I know that we've had to do we've had to crisscross a few times, but having <laughs> you on is well worth it. I know. So I was being patient. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So Vivian, before we get into the meat and potatoes, as I like to say, I want to ask you a question that usually leads us right where we're going to go. And that is, what is it that you are passionate about right now? Right now, what am I passionate about? (sighs) Lately, I've just been all about how can I get myself and others to operate more from a place of freedom instead of fear? There's just a peace and a vibe that goes with that. And I feel like I've been able to have a taste of that. And I want to bring others along with me. I love that. So tell me then, how have you gotten a taste of that? Because I think in order to be able to bring people along that way, we have to kind of know the road. So paint us a picture. Yeah, I'll give a little bit more context because part of it goes into my story. So Mm -hmm. my background is originally in counseling and human services. 
specifically trauma and addiction counseling. Then I made a career switch into design and tech about uh, six or seven years ago and made my way through, you know, that small digital agency. I, I worked at Google. I worked at Weight Watchers. And the last place I worked at was a company called Salesforce. And at the time I was, I was doing a lot. And I was doing a lot of what I think a lot of, especially Black people are used to doing in corporate, which is the job that they were hired for, then the other job, the job <laughs> around coaching, around DI related things. You know, <clears throat> my experience at Salesforce was unique in that even though I was there for two years, by the time I was there within my first year, I developed really good love, uh, really good relationships with C-level executives, texting, FaceTiming basis. I was doing internal coaching and consulting around DEI initiatives, I was being invited to internal leaderships offsites to do coaching and workshops and training around how to overcome some of the things that get in the way of innovation and DEI progress, like shame mm. or fear of failure. So really leveraging a lot of my counseling background into what I was doing and started Humanity Centered, which I'll, I'll get into that in the year of 2020. But by the time I got to the end of 2020, I felt like I was losing myself mm. and I ended up taking short-term medical leave. I ended up stepping away from work for about two and a half months so I could rest. Mm. And one of the greatest things that I got from that was clarity, mm -hmm. clarity around what I'm passionate about, clarity around who I am outside of what I can produce. But really mm. I got a taste of what it was like to operate more from a place of freedom instead of fear. And at that time, I was like, ooh, I don't know if I, if I can go back to corporate. I think I need to bet on me and just fully go into this business that I started and created. And I was kind of on the fence. And then I was a week before I was supposed to go back and I was watching the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. Have you seen that mm -hmm. movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for, for, for those of y'all who don't know, Judas and the Black Messiah is about Fred Hampton, who was the uh, Chicagoan leader of the Black Panther Party, the Chicago chapter. And it's about how uh, the government and the Chicago police basically conspired to assassinate them, which they did. Mm -hmm. And so there's this scene in the beginning where Fred Hampton and a bunch of Black Chicagoans are gathering together. And they're super excited that they're going to be naming this community college after Malcolm X. And so Fred Hampton, you know, gets up at one point. He's like, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. You think that's going to make you free? And I just had this moment where something snapped. And I was like, oh, snap. I'm not free. We're going to give you Juneteenth off. You think that's going to make you free? We're going to give you Martin Luther King Jr. Day off. You think that's going to make you free? We're going to give you this little employee resource group, this little race. You think that's going to make you free? And I was like, I'm not free. And so it was in that moment that I decided I need to chase pursue, prioritize what helps me to feel more free and less afraid. And for me, that was stepping away and leaving corporate America. And so I am 13 months and 28 days sober of corporate America. And it's good. I love how you say that. <laughs> Listen, I've never heard it said like that before, but it is so real like mm -hmm. so palpable <laughs> yo you just move different like you relate to work different you relate to who you are differently because i think what i've noticed is there's a difference between healing and coping yes 
Absolutely. It's a difference. And I've been able to step more into healing. And when you step more into healing, there are just certain people that are no longer compatible with your more healed self. So your circles change. Ooh, the energy wow. around you change. Say that. Yo. Yes. <laughs> it's a vibe. It's a big vibe. It is. So here's the question that, I, that comes up for me is we know that as black people, when we go into the, into the workplace, into the workforce, we switch up. Hmm. Is it possible that what you're talking about is getting stuck in that switch, getting, hmm. you know, like, like the light goes off when we go to work, so to speak. Hmm. Hmm. Is it that we can't find the switch to turn it back on when we leave those places of work? That's a good question, because I also am very clear that I don't think leaving a corporate job is the only way to ex yeah. experience more freedom instead of fear. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I think for some people, the familiarity of the pain mm -hmm. of the current situation feels safer and more bearable than the pain it would take to choose to heal and to choose something better. Cause it's, it's painful to heal. Mm -hmm. It's painful to choose yourself and you've been conditioned for so long not to mm -hmm. painful. And I think where I'm noticing people getting stuck is the willingness, the ability to operate in the midst of that fear and pain so that they can experience something different and better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when you stepped away when you said I need to take care of myself what what did, what were you feeling at that point in time and I have I have different theories because you said that right before then you were doing a lot of work in terms of DEI and helping people understand certain things and and going through you know that type of support work mm -hmm. what do you think it was that caused you to have that need to step back what what, what did you feel? What was going on? Yeah. You know, I often describe it as I felt like I was losing myself. Mm -hmm. I felt, I, I remember distinctly having this moment of being so burnt out, mm -hmm. so broken that I was at this place of fear of if I don't step away, I'm actually afraid I might not be able to work again. And for me, one of the most egregious things a person or entity can do is to break your spirit. And I felt like I was getting to this point. And I think a part of it too is probably uh, the compounding effects of, you know, what I often talk to clients about these days around institutional betrayal and moral injury. So yes. institutional betrayal, for folks who don't know, it, it actually comes from research and studies around betrayal trauma. And institutional betrayal refers to the wrongdoings perpetuated by an institution upon individuals who are dependent on the institution, including things like failure to prevent or respond supportively to wrongdoings by individuals like harassment, microaggressions, all those things mm -hmm. committed within that context of that institution. 
So a lot of us, uh, you know, have probably had these experiences where you followed the rules, you filed a report, you issued a complaint, and yet you still weren't protected. And the other thing that I would say is uh, moral injury. And so when I'm talking about moral injury, I'm, uh, I'm referring to the damage done to someone's conscience and moral compass within the workplace. So moral injury can come from actions that the person themselves perpetuates, maybe situations that they've witnessed um, or situations in which they have failed to prevent specific activities from taking place that go against their own beliefs. And so within design and tech, there's a lot of talk about being human-centered. And I came from the counseling human service world. Mm -hmm. So when I came into design and tech uh, and then seeing the discrepancies, mm -hmm. the truncatedness of understanding people, and then being in teams and organizations who would preach one thing and do the other, mm. that's what contributed to moral injury. And so I think the compounding effects of that and just not dealing with workplace trauma mm -hmm. is something that, you know, I found myself needing to step away so I could heal and not lose myself. Yeah. Wow. Those, thank you for explaining those, those, that terminology, because I think that that's going to be very useful for people to understand what that terminology means, because it also allows people to see where they fall on those on yeah. that spectrum as well. Right. Because yeah. if you're listening and you know that you're, you're, you're a company leader or something and you're hearing institutional betrayal and you hear what that means and you go, oh, crap. Right. It's important mm -hmm. for people to understand some of these words and these phrases because otherwise we just we're, we're working in paradigms where we don't have the words. And yeah. so the more words and the more phrases that we can use to explain the things that happen, the better. So thank you yes. for that. Yes. I have I have a theory as well. Um, I see that a lot of people who do work in, in DEI don't stay in their positions for very long. And besides this that you've pointed out, the institutional bet betrayal, the moral injury, I think that people who work in DEI carry also a lot of the weight of emotions that happen within the institution, right? They carry their own feelings. They push those down. They carry other people's feelings and have to navigate those feelings in a certain way so that they can do their job without, without causing injury, so to speak, to someone else. And I think that that is a lot. Like I know for the work that I do, it's a lot. I have barriers, yeah. boundaries built in that allow me to take space. But when you're in a regular nine to five situation, grind in, grind out, you're not actually doing the same work as other people. You're doing a lot of emotional work along with what you're doing. And that can be something that burns people out very quickly. I, I feel. Yeah. I mean, I would say, so, you know, I was working a lot within design and within design, there's a lot of people are attracted to that work because of its ideals around inclusion, being human centered, caring about other people, but a lot of folks within that industry. And I would also say within DEI and really within heavily tech industries, 
a lot of folks weren't necessarily prepared with then how to advocate for, advance that, and capitalistic systems that at times inherently seems like it's against that work. And so what I'm noticing a lot, and even when I switched from counseling into design, I was noticing that self-care was viewed as a nice to have, whereas in counseling and social work, self-care is viewed as an ethical imperative. Like you just, you don't decouple that and untether that from your work. It's actually viewed as one thing. Mm -hmm. So when I switch into design, and you know, a lot of people will say I, I do DEI work, but really I'm just all about being human centered and DEI just happens to be a part of that. Uh, there's this weird dichotomization that mm. I think the tech industry does where they're like human centered work and DEI. And it's like, no, that's actually what it means to be human centered. <laughs> but what I've noticed is a lot of professionals in design and DEI suffer from compassion fatigue and compassion fatigue it's, it's not a matter of if, it's always a matter of when. If yeah. a large part of your responsibility is extending empathy mm -hmm. in your role, is extending care, you will always experience compassion fatigue at some point. Mm -hmm. And that can include like emotional, physical, spiritual distress. Mm -hmm. When I talk about spiritual, I'm talking more in the terms of like, what brings you meaning and purpose. And I just, I don't see this level of care for the practitioner, for the individual uh, when it comes to this work, because there's this over-indexing on care for others and this under-indexing on care for ourselves. 100%. Yeah. I think, I, I think you've hit the nail right on the head. Absolutely. There is so much, there's not, there's just not enough care taken. I think just in general for people, like I think yeah, you know, certain certain people in certain positions, just like you said, you know, certain sectors, it's very much about empathy. It's very much about the people. And mm. it's just expected that that's what you do. And it doesn't affect you any way, in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Although <laughs> we're human, you know, and it and yeah. it does. It's It's a very um, and that's one of the reasons why I really think that a lot of people do get burnt out very quickly because they don't understand that that fatigue, that over-indexing, and that need for everyone. I, I feel it's yes. so odd to me that self-care is not even considered <laughs> in so many, you know, positions. It's, yeah. It blows my mind. But I think when you pull back and understand the history of capitalism, capitalism, right? So like a lot of productivity methods and ways of working with employees within organizations actually stems from advice given to plantation owners. A lot of people don't know this. So uh, I bet I was having this moment, this, uh, this uh, summer, last summer, I was just reading a lot of this stuff and, you know, things like reorgs, mm. plantation owners were encouraged to do reorgs within their plantations so that their slaves wouldn't be able to get too close to each other, to, yeah. share too much knowledge, uh, timed lunches, you know, employee from the month actually came from this practice around, you know, slave of the month kind of show like, Hey, this is what top tier productivity and what it looks like to get things done looks like. Wow. But I think if we're going to actually start to be honest with ourselves in a way that can allow us to then create subcultures 
within our companies, I think we just have to be honest about the reality that capitalistic systems at their core were built to exploit. Mm. They, in many ways, they're kind of banking on us not fully recognizing and owning our own humanity, right? Why do you think some of these companies are fighting so hard against unions, which the whole point is to just care more about people. So it's like, once you're able to really understand, okay, the system was built to exploit me. Now here's how I can start to create subcultures, rituals, and really forms of resistances and acts of refusal so that I can care for myself and not lose myself in this work. Yeah. Wow. That's deep. (laughs) Like, yo, (laughs) I'm having a moment. I'm having a moment. (laughs) Yo, it's real. I mean, I'll I'll share this. I'll share this last thought of like, I think we have in many ways normalized these abusive relationships with our workplaces. And so, you know, I often use illustration of if you had a really close friend came to you and they're like, you know, I'm in this relationship and, you know, I'm afraid to, to speak up you know, I, in this relationship, my values aren't recognized, my voice, my talents aren't recognized. You know, I feel like I need to walk on eggshells around certain topics that mean a lot to me. And, you know, I don't feel like I can really just be myself. And like, I just, I have to like hide parts of myself. Hopefully you'd be telling that friend, swerve, get out of relationship. (laughs) we need an intervention. But what I noticed with people and how they talk to the work is it's kind of the same thing, except it's phrased in, okay, but like, how can I better deal with the toxicity? How can I better, you know, manage the abuse that I'm experiencing? And again, if we had a friend who's coming up that coming to us with that advice, hey, how do I better manage and like deal with this abusive relationship? You'd be like, uh, get out, take care of yourself, prioritize yourself. And so um, I like to encourage people, like, you got to think about that in terms of your work. And there are healthier teams and places that people can find themselves. And there are boundaries and things that they can put in place in order to better, in order to better protect themselves. Mm-hmm. I never said it was going to be easy, Mm-mm. but it'll be worth it. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh my gosh. <laughs> that analogy is so on point. Like... <laughs> It's so true. Wow. We've normalized that. And the thing is, so if we if we kind of turn the tables and we turn it around and we say to, let's say, a, a business leader, a company leader, and we say, hey, your people are feeling this way, right? Which means that your company, your business, your office, your team, what have you, is the abuser, how do you intend to fix that? Mm-hmm. Because if you went to someone with that analogy, right? Let's say, let's say you were going to go to your uh, team leader, your boss, the CEO or whatever, and you wanted to tell them about their company. And that's the analogy you used. And you asked them, what would you tell this person? And they gave an answer. Then you said, I'm talking about this company, or I'm talking about this team, or I'm talking about the people that I'm working yeah. with, yeah. right? I think it would be so incredibly powerful. Of course, there would be an incredible backlash. There would be an incredible knee-jerk reaction. But 
it would be hard to dispute. Yeah. It would be hard to dispute and it would be something that someone would definitely have to think about. And so yeah. what you just said is, is so true. We've, we ask, how do we deal with this? How do I go in and just suck it up? How do I, yeah. <laughs> we never, I would never tell a friend to go suck it up in a relationship. No, that's, that's no. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Fun. <laughs> yeah. And I think like what excites me though, about one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that people's values shifted and changed. They were yeah. realizing, wait, why, why am I doing this? Yes. Why am I working so hard to help my white billionaire boss go to space? people are realizing I think I want better I deserve better and better is overdue to me and I think I'm going to go get better so Mm -hmm. uh within humanity centered you know we work with professionals in design and tech we help them to do the personal work required to do their best professional work and we do that Mm -hmm. through courses community and consulting and I remember I was talking to a bunch of executives one day I'm doing this training around organizational trauma and one thing that I brought up to them was, and again, I feel like with Humanity Centered, there's a, there's a candor and honesty that we're able to talk to our clients with. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I said was, you know, you've been able to get away with for so long telling your employees, we're going to help you retire by the time you're 64. We'll give you money. We'll give you stocks. We'll match your 401k. But in the age of the internet, and also in light of the pandemic, people are realizing they deserve more. They have access on how to better care for themselves and take care of themselves. And what they're realizing is they don't need you and you need them. And now it's actually Mm -hmm. a business imperative for you to start intentionally caring about and creating environments that are, yes, not only psychologically safe, but trauma-informed. Because while you've been thinking about the future of work being remote, future of work is trauma-informed. You have four generations in the workforce now. Again, generalize a little bit. Mm -hmm. Gen Xers and baby boomers have kind of been taught to just kind of suck it up and deal with the toxicity of the workplace. It's just, it's part of the game. You just deal with it. Gen Z millennials were more diverse. We've had the privilege, and I say privilege very intentionally, the privilege of being able to talk more openly and honestly about mental health in the workplace, Mm -hmm. racism, injustice but more importantly we'll quit without a plan like foosball (laughs) and free lunch will not keep us (laughs) places that we are not happy and we're gonna be making up most of the workforce soon so you gotta get in line you better figure it out (laughs) yeah so now it's a business imperative because what's your business gonna look like in 20 30 years you're afraid of millennials and gen zers wait until you see the generations coming in after us (laughs) i love it and And that's the truth and one of the executives was like, yeah, like I, it's not even Gen Z's and millennials, um, millennials I'm worried about. It's the generations coming in after y'all. I'm like, right. So now you actually have to try. Now you yes. actually have to try to create workplace experiences and cultures that are trauma informed and where people actually want to spend a good chunk of their life and day. Yes. Yes. You, you have to now shift the paradigm, right? Yeah. I, I, I get it. You know, I'm Gen X and I, I, for most of my working adult life, I've sucked it up. 
because, mm. and I often think that it's, it's a product of the civil rights movement. After we got different legislation put into place, it was like, okay, now we need to just act right or whatever the case may be, right? We need yeah. to act right. We need to assimilate. We need to do this. We need to do that. And, you know, as I was coming, coming in later in my 20s and my 30s, I started to kind of just shake and go, you know, what, what is, what is, what are we doing? Like, what am I doing? Yeah, like, what's yeah. going on? You know? And so I think that because ge- millennials are our children, <laughs> <laughs> millennials are our children. And we were like, you know what? So we actually paved the way. We we told you all, we said, you don't have to take what we took. You don't have to do what we did. You can do it differently. And so, yeah. so millennials are coming up and going, we don't have to do what, what they did. <laughs> so you are so right. And so it is, it is, an, it is an imperative. It is an imperative because yeah. for me, I, I was on a, on a podcast the other day and they asked me, what would be your ideal? Like what, what would be your ideal in the work that you do in the next five to 10 years? I said, my ideal would be that there would be a whole paradigm shift within mm. the workplace where people would matter more, where mm. it wouldn't be all about the company and what it, how, how well is the company going to do, but it would be more about the company caring about how I do. Because if you care about how I am, and mm. like you said, you care about the environment that I come into for the most part of my day, every day, and I really enjoy it, I'm going to deliver for you. The company is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But it's about investing in those people and making sure that the environment you bring them into is good. Yeah. I don't know if we can get any clearer with that. Like, yeah. I feel like we're not just saying there's a problem. We know there's a problem. But I feel like we're saying, here's the solution for you. Here's what you can do. What are you going to do with that? Care about your people. What are you going to do with that? You know? Hi, my name is Sadrola Maruska, and I'm a leadership coach. I give business leaders the confidence and tools to have conversations about equity and inclusion to improve culture, increase productivity, and decrease attrition. All this I do through my Leader Builder Coaching Program. If you'd like to know more, please go to diversitydish.com. Yeah. And I also wonder, like for me, I I love that you bring the generational point up as well, because I think also generationally, the, the, the different generations within the Black community respond and move through the world different than the different differently with the white community or whatever it is right yes and I think that's yes. really important and one thing that I would I think a game changer for a tech company wouldn't necessarily be them having a chief diversity officer who is what we're noticing now either black and gen x or baby boomer but if there was a multi-generational board around it right because I remember talking to this chief diversity officer once and I was asking them, you know, help me understand kind of like your metrics for success around this particular diversity related event. And they were like, oh, well, 
you know, we're basically using the marketing orgs metrics because that's where the budget is coming for this event. I'm like, okay, that's cool. But like, what are your success metrics? This is a chief diversity officer, black baby boomer. And they were like, well, who am I to use other metrics outside of the marketing orgs metrics in order to establish, you know, what the success metric should be. And I said to them, I was like, well, if I could be bold with you, you're the (laughs) C-level executive of your own org. You can use whatever metrics you want. And something that I noticed, and I get that there's like um, corporate political navigation and skill, you know, in order Mm -hmm. to navigate these environments. But I kind of wonder, like, what if those positions were more diverse in terms of Mm -hmm. even just generationally, right? Like, what if there was less fear? Because I I do see, and I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well connected within the DI community. And there is that, there is a level of fear at times. And there is a level of, well, this is how I show up into work. Or, oh, we can't like necessarily push too hard because we don't want to make, you know, especially people in the majority, especially white people uncomfortable. So then what you're then doing is you're creating DEI initiatives and quote unquote change that is built on whiteness and the comfort of white people. And that is, I don't know about you, but I don't know if we should have that as a, as the bar for progress. Oh my God. (laughs) Say that again, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what are we doing? Like, actually, like we have, I'm seeing so like, regardless of race, I'm seeing so many people waste their privilege to actually implement and cause real change to bridge that gap between good intention and real impact like yo we only got one life here like you do people realize in 100 years everyone here is going to be dead (laughs) like do you realize like you only have such a short time on this side of eternity like what what are you what are you afraid about again what is it you know what i think that i think that you come from a place of freedom (laughs) listen i'm talking like i'm free because i am free but also you know what it is like but that's so important that's so important and i think it's so great (laughs) but also what it is is i've had my own couple near-death experiences right so my relationship to life is very different Mm. because i know what it's like to have death be a little bit more tangible tangible yes and when, yes. it, when death becomes more tangible to you, which I feel like this pandemic has actually done for a lot of people, when death becomes more tangible, you become less risk averse. Mm-hmm. You become a little more bold because you're like, mm-hmm. ooh, tomorrow's I not promised. Be, that's right. I could be dead. <laughs> Yo, so why not leverage and step into the power of my voice? Yes. Why not decrease the cost of care for a lot of these companies, which in the summer of 2020, the cost of care a black man had to die. Right? If we can decrease that cost of care, yes. my voice can help someone stop question and think mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. evoke them to commitment through conviction, through a desire to take initiative versus pity and shame, because that's not sustainable. No. Right? There's a reason why book clubs are the hot, were hot in summer of 2020 and they're not hot now, because a lot of companies depended too heavily on shame and yes. sadness from white people. Mm-hmm. And that is just not sustainable. No, because it goes away. It evaporates, you know, we, and we know this, we know we've watched, we've watched it go up and down, up and down, up and down. And that's why it does that because it's yes. not built 
in anything that is sustainable. There has to be certain things have to be normalized. Let's put it that way. Certain conversations and certain things have to be normalized in order for the conversations to keep going and that people can keep being uncomfortable. Because really we know that there has to be discomfort all times as you're moving forward. There's there's no comfort yeah. in in moving forward. You have to be uncomfortable or you're not moving forward. Oh, and yeah. so it's it's that is what it is, right? Yeah. And nobody wants to be uncomfortable and it's so interesting that you say that because I see different, you know, D D I courses. I see different things and there's always this element of let's make it as palpable as possible. And I'm like People are burning out. People are dying. People are stressed because everyone's trying to make it palpable to say these people are dying. These people are stressed. These people need help. We need yeah. to just say it. We just need to say what needs to be said. Yes, we need to say it in a way that people can hear, but not in a way for them to feel so comfortable about it. Because if you feel comfortable about it, then you're going to go home. You're going to sleep just fine. You're never going to think about it again, right? You have to wake people up and say, hey, the house is burning down. What are you going to mm -hmm. do? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I yeah. appreciate your candor. You have no idea because it's so important. It's yeah. So important. I mean, to your point, like people are dying over this, right? And something that we talk a lot about and we work with our clients on is what has been lacking and missing is helping teams, helping leaders, helping people build the emotional endurance and relational fitness required to do this work. Emotional endurance and relational fitness. And a lot of companies handle that by saying, you know, hey, lean into that wave of white guilt and shame and join all those book clubs. Hey, sign up for Black Lives Matter walk and pat yourself on the back. But like people actually aren't able to build that endurance. You can't build endurance and fitness if you aren't picking up heavy weights. And right. so something that I love about Dr. Danielle Hodge, she's a facilitator at Humanity Centered, a professor as well at University of Colorado Boulder is her areas of specialty are critical race uh, discourse analysis, critical hip hop analysis. Mm. She talks a lot about language that perpetuates and exacerbates violence in terms of anti-Black racism. Mm -hmm. And what I love about her content is the depth, because I think a lot of companies do a huge disservice, especially during Black History Month, which is honestly one of the most triggering months for me now, <laughs> where they bring on some celebrity, LL Cool J, Alicia Keys, whoever it is, talk about how great it is being black. I don't actually need you to tell me how great being black is. I already know how great it is to be black. What I need is education <laughs> and accountability on things like anti-black racism. What I need is inclusive behaviors to be treated as treated as a performance issue and not a personality issue. Mm -hmm. What I need is actual depth in training. I can't keep eating baby food and expecting myself to grow in a mm -hmm. healthy way. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that's something where I've become so much more passionate about is, yo, we need depth. Like if we're going to grow. Yeah. And we really only want to work with people who are interested, who are curious enough. I'm not saying that they're not scared, but they do it scared. Yeah. You know, what does it look like to grow, 
to be curious and to take initiative over that. Yeah. And I think that once business leaders really get into that mindset that you're just talking about, there will be a paradigm shift. There has to be a paradigm shift, right? Yeah. What I find also very interesting is when you're talking about these positions, the DEI positions mm -hmm. at, at organizations, and you're talking about having baby boomers in them. Mm. It's very interesting to me, very, very interesting to me, how many of those positions say you have to have 15 to 20 years of experience in Man. this. <laughs> and I go, we're looking for what you're looking for are people like you, people who are when we're talking generationally, right? You're looking for people who are going to be from your generation who are going to possibly think a little bit like you because that's comfortable. You don't yeah. want none of these millennials coming in here shaking things up too much, right? Yeah. And, and that's too bad because that's kind of what's needed. That's what's needed. I love, yeah. I love your idea of a group, group-centered diversity, equity, and inclusion office because that i think that that would be like a a model for how the other teams in the organization could work yeah and i think the other thing that would be really important because <clears throat> i've come across people like this as well within dei is making sure that folks within that working group aren't in what we call the sunken place <laughs> so when we talk about the sunken place this is referring to uh jordan peele's movie get out and there's this just watch the movie google it but essentially the sunken place is the silencing and i think yes. that there are a lot of folks too where because it's a survival thing have internalized a lot of their own have internalized a lot of racism and so i know and i i'm already thinking about some of those companies who are coming to mind where <laughs> a lot of their diversity and inclusion folks are in the sunken place and as long as they're in the sunken place, they're still not pushing for and advocating for the accountability and progress that's needed. And so, uh, and that that's a whole nother like podcast episode that we could do on <laughs> the sunken place. What is it? How do you get there and how do you get out? But really, I think the, the thread that's through that is accountability. It's also this idea that just because you care about diversity and inclusion doesn't mean that you are equipped to lead people through that uh, doesn't mean that you are equipped to what I what I notice is missing, and this is like my counseling background coming out. So a lot of these companies, a lot of DI professionals, do not know how to help people navigate shame. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to ground people, give them the tools to not dismiss or pull themselves out of a conversation because of shame. And so I do a lot of training and coaching, even depending on the workshops that I do, there's a moment where I talk about what shame is mm -hmm. physiologically, how does it play out, how it actually activates a similar part of the bra, uh, similar part of the brain, uh, lights up when you're experiencing shame in the same way of when you're experiencing trauma and how to ground yourself in that. And there's not a lot of support in that personal work. It's more of this, I, this, uh, kind of like this false belief. Well, as long as I tell people what racism is, the definition of white supremacy, they'll change. Well, if that was the case, 
then like there'd then be no would... self-help section, right? We would all be fit. We would all be eating <laughs> super healthy. There'd be no financial issues, no financial trauma. Right. Like it's right. not like attack, like addressing the mind isn't enough. You have to connect the head knowledge of an issue, the heart knowledge of an, of an issue so that people can then be evoked to action and change. Yes. That's why people need to find you and work with you because, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I'll say this though, like before people like reach out, uh, <laughs> what, I, what I talk about a lot is, you know, we work with people who fall within the scope of what we call our ministry, right? Mm. So on a scale of one to 10, one being racism is not real and 10 being like Ben and Jerry's on steroids. Our ministry is between a six and a nine. Like if you reach out to us and you're like, can you help us do an unconscious bias training? Like you're not our ministry. No. If you reach out to us like, Hey, can you make a workbook on how to do a, B and C? Like you're not our ministry. Like we want to move the sixes to a seven, the seven and a half to an eight, like that's six to nine. That's our ministry. Yeah. Yes. And I, and I understand that being the case, you know, I talked to I say to people all the time, they're like, well, how do you talk to somebody who is adamantly uh against i say i don't talk to them yeah i don't that's next question <laughs> that's trauma for me that's, yeah I, I i have boundaries i don't talk to them yeah and you yes. know and people think that that's harsh and i go how is it harsh are you gonna go if somebody is beating you down are you gonna keep going to them and say you know please beat me over the head more it's like no i don't have time for that yeah that's um, someone else's ministry that's and someone else. like you just, you got to understand. Cause like, I think what a lot of people don't realize is like, you got to protect your energy. Yes. And not everyone is deserving access of it. To That's right. There's some people that could be their ministry. It's not mine. And I'm cool with that. Yes. Yes. I'm cool with that. I'm going to keep it moving and I'm not going to lose sleep over not talking to that person. Yeah. Right. On the other hand, there are also people who believe that they know so much that there's nothing you can tell them. And yeah, that also is not, <laughs> no, you fall outside the scope of the ministry. If you want to do a self pacing where I don't have to personally interact with you, that's different, right? Go that route. Right. And, that's and okay. so, yes, there, we have to know, we have to know and understand our boundaries, where our boundaries lie and those yeah. things that we are willing to, to, to work with. Mm -hmm. And people also have to understand where they fall on that scale. Anyone who's listening, anyone who wants to do this work, they have to understand where they fall on the scale and yeah. where they are willing to growth to, yes. right? If they are a five, are they willing to grow into a six? If there are six, are they willing to grow to a seven? Yeah. Are they willing to fall back? I had an interesting question yesterday and it was, how do you get, how do you speak to leaders, specifically white heterosexual males for whom the system is, is completely built? How do you get them to listen and understand and buy into shifting of this paradigm how would you do that yeah well and we could swing swing to this second part after this but i also want to address white cis hetero women we can get yes. to that after this question 
But something that I do a lot of, and this, this comes from, I have two prongs to my operating philosophy. One is that people are wired to know others and be known by others. Unless you're a sociopath and you fall outside of that. But I really believe people are wired to know and be known. Mm-hmm. And the second is that people can only handle so much truth in one sitting. So what I'll do, mm-hmm. depending on the thing that needs to be personally confronted, because I think that's a lot of this work, you have to actually address them at a personal level mm-hmm. so that they could then be addressed at the professional level. Mm-hmm. I'll often ground illustrations and story. <clears throat> so I'll give an example. I was working with a client once who wanted help reimagining, you know, big education company. They wanted help reimagining their education programs in a way that would be innovative. And also this was in the summer of 2020. So like, oh, and also like more equitable because that's a hot topic right now. And I was like, mm, not a hot topic, but we'll swing back to that. <laughs> so we're doing this workshop a couple of weeks later. Same executive was like, you know, I think this is just a marketing issue. I think if we have just more diversity represented within the marketing, then we'll be able to be more equitable. Equitable, And I was like, mm, I don't know if that's it. And I was like, how about this? Like, you know that feeling you get when you're walking and your sock kind of slides off? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, and you like can't stop and address it because you got, you got places to be, but you're just constantly aware of this thing that shouldn't be. And that is off and that is wrong. And you're that discomfort. You just kind of have to deal with it. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, that's how your customers feel. <laughs> when they engage experiences that did not keep them or was built with them in mind. mind. Mm-hmm. That thing that they just kind of have to deal with, even though they know it's off and it was never meant to be that way mm-hmm. in the first place. And I was like, what other experiences like that have you felt? And now the other executives are jumping in like, oh, going to a five-star restaurant and the food being crap or being super excited about this movie and it just being garbage. And so I'm like getting into like connect with that emotional experience, that level of relatability through something else Mm -hmm. so that I can make a greater point, which is you know, almost like, you know, the prophet in the old Testament, you too are this man, you know, like, <laughs> like, but it really is kind of this moment where I'm like, Ooh, let me get you to feel this. So then like I could shake and bake and you're like, Oh crap, that's me. Right. And at that point you're not yeah. driven them by pity mm-hmm. driven by understanding, understanding. Like, and even though it's obviously never going to be at the same level, yeah. at least you have something that I can anchor you to. Right. right. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> that's a lot. No, it's so good. It's so good. It's so true. So now yeah, I, I just... promise you my clients do like working with me. Um, I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm yeah, yeah. sure they do. It's um, like therapy sessions with them sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it is part therapy, isn't it? Because it's kind of confronting confronting yourself looking yourself in the mirror and seeing something that you've never seen before and going oh my gosh that is me seeing for like for the first time certain thing so let's talk about these cis heterosexual women yeah because i think that (laughs) i think that what happens is they fly under the radar Hmm. 
in many ways. Mm-hmm. And they, especially if they are open to learning, they still don't see how they fall into this paradigm and how they perpetuate this and how, you know, they, yeah, I they think, were her property. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, there's research out, the people who are listening can Google this about how a lot of progress around DEI and DEI initiative initiatives have actually benefited white women the most. Yes. And, you know, I think even there, there's so many aspects of this. I'm coming from a very, a very American mindset. Mm-hmm. So I think a part of this too falls within the education system. So I love February 15th, Susan B. Anthony's birthday. And I love every year when everyone, you know, someone says on the timelines, happy birthday. Thank you for fighting for women's rights. I'm always like white women's rights because Susan B. Anthony was racist. racist. AF, and she said, I would rather cut off my arm before helping the Negro. Yeah. So part of this is like education that yes. certain people who've been talked about in terms of, oh yeah, they're for all women, white women. Mm-hmm. So, Part of it's that part of it, I think is, you know, I feel like I, I talk and I've experienced a lot of white women who over index on the patriarchy and I get it because that's really the only thing that they're butting up against is mm. the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when I see a lot of these initiatives around women, so even like gender pay equity at Salesforce, I was very vocal internally. And even when I left of like, how are you accounting though for the way that black women are paid? Like, how do you know if it's race versus gender? Mm-hmm. How are you accounting for the way indigenous women are paid? Latina right. women are paid. Yeah. Um, All the intersectionalities that don't come yeah. into play when we're talking about women, right? Exactly. We want to just talk about women, but just as you talk about women, the image and the, and the thing that is thought of is right away a white cisgender woman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even I was talking to someone the other day about, they're like, oh my gosh, like that designer, Rebecca Minkoff, like love how she's all about women. I'm like, well, when I'm scrolling through her Instagram, I literally see no melanin. At one point I just stopped scrolling because there's like actually like no black women. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and I get it. Like it's, there's a level of discomfort, right? If you're going to be for all women, you're going to be uncomfortable. Mm. You're going to suffer a little bit. And I think that in order for us to make progress, I forget what that quote is, but you know, when you think about the way that women of color and particularly black women are treated, like we can't all be free until black women are free. That's this, true. Is some, this is something that Dr. Daniel Hodge talks a lot about within Humanity Centered, but you know, I think that there's this lack of understanding of what does it actually mean to be free? What does it mean to be free in a way that is actually inclusive, mm-hmm. that recognizes like intersectionality within the midst of that? And it's easier, and I think just a better win for companies to say, hey, we've increased hiring of women by 60%, but if 50, you know, 9%, 9% of those are, are white, women, white women, then who's winning? Not everyone. Right. right. And you know, what's interesting too is I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, this company, the people who are making all the decisions are, you know, white men. When in actuality, half of the executive team or part of the executive team is white women. 
And I had to go and explain. I said, you know what? When I, as a black woman, am looking at the executive team and I'm seeing all white women and men, I understand and know that those white women, no matter how progressive they think they are, are deferring to those white men. And therefore, there is no progress there. This is just used. And that's why I tend to shy away from diversity because diversity often includes white women when I don't know that that's true. And I go, and plus diversity is an outcome, an outgrowth of being equitable, of caring about people and giving people, you know, the voice that they need in, in, in the organization. So mm. I'm like, I don't know that I want to use that word so much because whenever it gets used, what people think of first is, well, we've hired all these women. And just like you said, well, 59, we've hired 60%, but 59% are, you know, white mm. women. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would love if companies did a lot more training around the dynamics of whiteness, right? I love it if organizations did more training on how do we untether people from unhealthy, unhelpful views of Blackness. Because uh, again, Daniel Hodge talks about this a lot, but she says, she talks about how whiteness relies on a distorted view of Blackness. And mm. I love that. Mm. Whiteness mm -hmm. relies mm -hmm. on a distorted view of Blackness. Because if you have a distorted view of Blackness, then of course you're going to understand your you know, own whiteness as something that deserves to be preserved. That is more, uh, there's more at stake of not preserving that versus that of let's say black women. Right. Yeah. But I just think in general, like, and this is one of the many things, many silver linings of the pandemic is it's causing people to realize that they deserve more mm -hmm. and more needs to be done. Yeah. And so there's this pressure that's happening that I love. Yeah. And people are being encouraged to strongly forced to deal with themselves and reckon with themselves. Yeah. I think it's what they do, but I think a lot, again, even when I'm talking to DEI professionals, I'm seeing, I'll say this, when I'm thinking about my work, I think about it within the context of trauma. So you have the trauma of the last two years of the pandemic which I think a lot of companies did a horrible job of over-indexing on burnout and resilience mm -hmm. instead of trauma because you treat them differently. Mm -hmm. And also the focus on resilience is more focused on the individual level than the systems level. You know, it's not us and the systems that are requiring you to be resilient. That's the problem. You need to be more resilient. You're the problem. Mm -hmm. But also too, you got to think about the upcoming trauma. So it's a, it's a midterm year in the States, mm. new trauma agitates old trauma. So people think that it's bad now, wait until the fall comes. <laughs> you think people are leaving now, wait until the fall comes when that new trauma, when a lot of that trauma from 2020 politically that no one's dealt with yes. starts to surface. Yes. People start to feel a little bit more angsty a little bit. Mm -hmm. People were feeling this way in November of 2021. They're like, wait, what's going on? I'm like, oh, that's trauma because your body will remember it if you don't deal with it. Yeah. That kicks off two years of just more pol sociopolitical trauma on top of the pandemic, on top of probably all of our family trauma and other things that are going on. Then you have the election and then you have another year probably of whatever traumatic transition that's going to be. And so companies and DI professionals, I fully expect a lot of DI professionals to leave the field in the next year and a half 
because I don't think a lot of people are preparing of how to deal with their own trauma, let alone help other people navigate the very real trauma that's coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Ooh, girl, you just said a whole mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. Wow. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, there needs to be more training and support, not only within organizations, but within the DI community about mm-hmm. trauma. Like, yeah. and the role of shame within that. And you can't be mm-hmm. doing unconscious bias training and not talk about shame and not talk about trauma. Like, right. you're wondering why no progress is being made. It's because one of the symptoms of trauma is, you know, removing yourself from things that agitate that. Agitate, yeah. So yeah. it's like, you got to do a little bit more training around that and more support yeah. around that. And I do worry for like the DEI community because I just... I don't see a lot of training. I don't see a lot of awareness around this. And I think it's so important and it's critical. I, th- I think that people have a distorted view of what it what trauma means. Yeah. Um, we're so used to trauma meaning, oh my God, they're bleeding out or something. Yeah. And yeah. without thinking about the psychological and the emotional trauma that people actually go through on a regular basis because it's all been normalized to a certain extent, right? Just like we were talking about, you know, that girlfriend who's telling you about her abusive man and that man happens to be work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right? Abusive partner and that partner happens to be work. You know, we've normalized it. And so we don't think of it as trauma, you Mm -hmm. know? when we talk about microaggressions, we're, we're thinking about, ah, oh, it's just a little aggressive. We don't think of it as trauma. Yeah. When, you know, it's a form of trauma. It is a form of trauma. It's acute trauma. Yeah. And it's, and it's things and it's ongoing mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that, that thing that you just cannot get away from because it's everywhere. Every lot of little things. Right. So what we're yeah. asking is that each company each team each leader in their space create a different paradigm that we can then have a bigger paradigm that has shifted from that and we need in that paradigm we need to talk about trauma as what it is yeah right just yeah yeah and and i would define so my working definition of trauma is trauma is any event or experience that leads to distress uh, impairment or emotional, physical, spiritual, or psychological harm. It's something that is often attributed to individuals, but it can also mm-hmm. be experienced within organizations. Mm-hmm. What I really want to hammer in though, especially the DEI folks who are listening to this is like to lead and guide organizations and leaders through specifically trauma-informed training and to call it trauma-informed there's actually like a skill set and expertise that goes to that. Mm. I would like to strongly discourage uh, DEI folks from viewing this as like an, uh, a business opportunity. Like, oh, let me just slap on trauma informed because unless you've had actual training and how to be trauma informed, like you shouldn't be labeling or calling things trauma informed. Like mm. mm-hmm. there is that that's an ethical responsibility mm-hmm. that we have to individuals and organizations that we work with you know, pulling a licensed, you know, person, pulling someone who 
uh, has clinical training and experience and, you know, a master's in counseling and social work underneath their belt. But we have to also understand like the limits. Mm -hmm. We have to know when to partner with people who can help us to do this work in a more holistic way. Yeah. So, you know, I talk about trauma impacting having spiritual harm. And I, I mean, we, we can all think of those people and ourselves probably included at some point where you experienced something harmful and it made you question what you thought your purpose was or made you question what you thought gave you meaning or value or helped you feel grounded in your life. That's trauma. That's trauma. So what does it look like to help teams, organizations, and leaders understand this and approach it at a holistic level? I talked to executives about spiritual harm, spiritual trauma, because I I'm educating them on language around what do I mean by that? And then they can also see that within themselves. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Vivian, it has been incredible. Is there anything you would like to share? I really want you to share your website. Yes. So that people can hear it. But is there anything else that you would like to share that we have not, you know, I mean, we've been we've been here. Oh, well, I'll I'll say this. It's one of the things that I'm recognizing is people are coming to us essentially with the question of how do I become less afraid? How do I feel less afraid so I can better advocate for myself and other people in the workplace? And one of the things that we recognize of why people are afraid is because of the potential impact they might have in their career progression or their job security, which means we need to talk about money. And so something that Humanity Center, what we're leaning more into is this conversation around financial health and wellness. Because if we can help people feel more confident, more in control, more hopeful about their financial health within these capitalistic systems, people will feel less afraid. Mm-hmm. People will be able to better advocate for others as well as themselves. So mm-hmm. I'm speaking at a conference called the UXR Conference. And I'm speaking with my good friend, Nate Wilson, and me and him are doing a session on healing your relationship with money. Mm-hmm. So that is June 6th. Uh, if you go to uxrconf.com, it should kick you there. Uxr.com. And then mm-hmm. uxrconf, so C-O-N-F, that should take you there. And the other thing that we're doing is we're doing a, a half day event. So Humanity Center, we do these different half day events throughout the year. We're having one on Friday, June 24th, where we are, uh, it's called Critical Convos. And essentially we're talking about financial health and capitalism. So we're having our first session be with a couple panelists. We're talking about financial health. What does it mean? Why do we need to take a more proactive approach into this? We're having a second session with a licensed therapist on financial trauma what it is, because we have a lot of people in tech who are making good money, but they still feel stuck. And a lot of that comes from unresolved financial trauma and fear. So we're going to be working through that, walking through an activity as well to help people better identify areas of financial trauma and how to overcome it. And then our third session is with the one and only Arlen Hamilton on how do you navigate power and fear within capitalistic systems. And so again, I'm just really interested in helping people operate more from a place of freedom instead of fear. And so I'll leave you with this is something that we often talk about within humanity centered within the team, within, you know, our audience is that critique is a signal of hope and hope is not a scarcity. 
And I think hope is a, it's a skill, it's a muscle. Mm -hmm. And so I know that there are probably folks who are listening to this who feel like there isn't hope, but if you're still even able to critique Mm -hmm. and recognize what is wrong and what could be better or more right, that's a sign of hope. Mm -hmm. And that hope's not a scarcity. And I hope that people would find comfort and encouragement in that. I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, Tell us your website again. Yes. So you can find out more about us at humanitycentered.com. You could type that out all in one word. I'll kick you to our website. Uh, The way that we spell humanity centered is humanity centered without the vowels. But if you even type out all of it with the vowels, humanitycentered.com, it'll take you to our website. That's how you can find out more about what we do in terms of courses, our events when we're going to start to have them as well as uh, some of the consulting we do with companies. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much, but I cannot let you go until I ask you the final question that I ask all my guests. And that is, what is your favorite dish? Ooh, what is my favorite dish? Lately, so I'm multicultural, multi-ethnic, so I'm half uh, half Nigerian, quarter Korean, quarter Jamaican. Grew up eating a lot of Korean and Nigerian food. Ooh, My man, go-to, food. listen, <laughs> listen. Um, my like go-to comfort food these days and like my favorite dish is something called agusi stew and fufu. So agusi <sighs> is, it's a Nigerian stew and it has like red palm oil, uh, crayfish, meat, fish, peppers, and then fufu is kind of this like, uh, it's pounded yam. It's almost like a dough. Mm. You break it off and you dip it into the stew and ah. Uh, I know so fufu, my, my, one of my, my roommate in college was from Ghana. Yes. And so uh. whenever I go to visit her, she lives in Chicago. Whenever I go visit her, she knows she has to make me some fufu and some soup and some yes. um, uh. jollof, rice jollof, yes. jollof yes. rice. Jollof. <laughs> Although there's this, there's this competition of who makes it I better. know, I it's know, between Nigeria, I, I don't want to get in between. I mean, <laughs> hey, I'm just, I'm just saying. Um, yeah, between Ghana here. and Nigeria, I'm like, I have not had Nigerian fufua. Please don't kill me. I will try it. But y'all, y'all got this thing going. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's all over the jollof. It's, uh, it's who, all the jollof. Who, who makes the jollof rice better? But... Yes. No, I love Agusi still from Chicago. So all the Agusi, all the night, you know, West African restaurants are on the north side of Chicago. Ooh, yes. And I live on like the southwest side of Chicago. So anytime I want some like good, like Agusi, I always have to travel a little bit. <laughs> but it's good. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Vivian. You have been such a pleasure to have a conversation with. And I... Thank you. I mean, I just think that this episode is really going to just give people a lot of insight. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. And yes, the, the pleasure has been all mine. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at Patreon dot com backslash Cedrola Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget diversitydish.com.
I'd love to work with you. See you soon.